0: in a new series this morning and turn to Ecclesiastes. If you want to know where Ecclesiastes is, turn to Psalms, which is about smack dab in the middle of your Bible, and just turn a little bit to the right. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes is where we're going to be picking up there. I've made allusions to it a couple of times this morning, but I do, um, I want to, I'm going to pray again here in just a minute. You know, the world is, it, we, It's always full of incredible suffering. Um, There are parts of, there's horrible and awful things going on at all times. Um, But there's something about war in particular that um, it really it throws it in our face. And um, so this week has been um, um, Ecclesiastes is misspelled. Uh, Sorry. but there's something acute about war that um, brings us to a sense of our fragility and our desperate need for the, longing for the Lord to come, come come, move and work. And so I want to pray for uh, Ukraine and Russia and for God to bring peace to that, to that area. Um, I want to also pray, we have um, some folks who are part of our church, Daniel and Marky Baird, who have been um, seeking to adopt from Ukraine, and that was... Uh, we're literally at the final steps and preparing to go. They were, what, you guys were in Cruchet in what, a couple, three weeks ago, I believe? Um, and so there's significant questions now uh, for them and they're dealing with um, some severe, severe uh, providences. Um, so we need to pray for them and that the Lord will protect their little one who is already theirs, this little one who's been declared to be theirs. And so uh, we need to pray that the Lord will protect that little one and get her out of the country and bring her home. So let's do that now let's pray Lord, I think watching the news so many people Ukrainians who are outside of the country and others they feel so helpless and I feel so helpless we are small and so Lord I thank you that in their moments when we have to face our smallness in this way that Lord we can cling to a mighty God your ways though Lord are unfathomable and they, frankly, they confuse us. And so, Lord, uh, I pray right now that in the confusion of these moments for the Baird family, in the fear, uh, that, Lord, you would be their comfort and their strength. Lord, as they, that every day they would find that your mercies are new. And, Lord, preserve their little one and bring her home. In the same way, Lord, we pray that you would bring peace that you would be the father, you're the father of all nations, you're the king of kings and the lord of lords, and I pray that you would bring peace to that, that area of our world. Um, I pray for our world leaders who have enormous and momentous decisions um, in dealing with, with, with others who are irrational and evil, and um, Lord, this is, this is a, a weighty moment, and so I pray that you would give them great wisdom. I pray that you would put men and women of great strength and knowledge and men and women who fall on their knees uh, before you in places of power to make decisions. And Lord, I pray that you would bring peace. Would your, would your church in Ukraine in particular rise up? I thank you for the evidences that we've seen this week of, of Christians singing, He will hold me fast. Of Christians praying on streets in which there is war coming. And, and it's for these, these witnesses. May the, may the, may the world um, see uh, people clinging to Jesus. And may they see the church rise up in places like Poland, and Latvia, and Romania, as they welcome um, so many strangers and immigrants to their country. Would you preserve your followers there in that place? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're going to read the first 11 verses of chapter 1, and then we're going to read the last seven or so of chapter 12, the bookends of the book. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 through 11 Here's God's word. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem vanity of vanities, says the preacher vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by the toil of which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Chapter 12, picking up in verse eight. The same words again. "Vanity of vanity," says the preacher. "All is vanity." Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. "The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd." My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible words. Jonathan... um, Causal is a writer for the Washington Post and author and he's indeed as well as a social activist. And in his best-selling book he entitled Amazing Grace, he tells the story of meeting a woman by the name of Alice Washington when he was working in the South Bronx of New York City. Washington told causal stories about the struggle of living in the area of the city that she lived in in urban America, stories of poverty and drugs and violence. "'Alice and her son David were living at this time in a run-down motel. "'Their room had three deadbolt locks on the door. "'Alice Washington herself was dying of AIDS, "'a disease she had contracted from her husband, "'who had been an IV drug user. "'Her misery was compounded by the physical abuse "'that was inflicted on her by her husband at various times.' But every time Jonathan Kozol checked up on Alice Washington, she was noticeably weaker. During one of his final visits with her, Kozol noticed that Alice's Bible was open on her lap, and he asked what part of the Bible she enjoyed most. And she said this The book of Ecclesiastes. If you want to know what's happening in the world these days, it's right here. Ecclesiastes sounds very ancient. But it's a very modern book. The same problems that it's talking about in this book are the same problems we face today, which you heard in the passage I read. The very writer and the teacher says that. Herman Melville says that this is a truthful book. Yes, that Herman Melville, the one who wrote the quintessential American novel Moby Dick, he said it is the truest of all books. The truest of all books. For most of us, our exposure, though, to the book of Ecclesiastes amounts to what is communicated in the famous and often quoted hippie song sung by the birds for every season. Turn, turn, turn. Everything, turn, turn. Other than that, Ecclesiastes is not a place that we tend to hang out. There are too many questions being asked it is too confusing. Frankly, it's depressing one moment and gives bizarre advice in the next. And even if we could understand, it doesn't seem to be any good news in this book at all. What do they see in this book that we don't? What did Melville and Alice Washington see? Well, this morning I want to Use this text from verses 1 through 11 in the last section to introduce us to the book of Ecclesiastes and help us understand it as a whole, to give us a, a view of the whole book to set in, us in categories for where we're going for the rest of our next 10 to 11 weeks looking at this very enigmatic book. So first, the approach of Ecclesiastes is the first point I want to look at this morning. The approach. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. It is the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then chapter 12, verse 10, it says this. The preacher sought to find words of delight. So he's giving us words. And uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise, he said, are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. The author we might call is our tour guide through life. In this particular translation of the ESV, he's called preacher. Others translate this as simply teacher. Others, professor or shepherd. Some get very specific and call him the philosophy professor, and that is well-fitting. The words of the preacher, the Greek title actually gets its name from this word preacher. Literally in the Hebrew, it's koheleth But the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Kohelet is Ecclesiastes. That's the name of the book. Ecclesiastes. The name is preacher or philosopher. That's the name of this book. It's a nickname of sorts. The word refers to someone who gathers people and and shares with them and teaches them. That could be a preacher. That could be a teacher. That could be a philosophy professor. But what is the identity of Kohelet? we're not really entirely sure who wrote this book. It is actually a pseudonym of some sort, that it could be this Kohelet, this preacher. Figuring out even who has written this book is difficult. The traditional view is Solomon, because it says there right in the opening that this person was a son of David who was a king. And because Solomon is known as the most prolific writer of wisdom, writing Proverbs and the Song of Solomon, often it is attributed this book to him. And that works out in many ways. But why doesn't he come out and say these are the words of Solomon? He does that in other places. Solomon does, says, this is my book. I'm the one who wrote this. Some have also postulated that the writer of this book is essentially doing what is a literary device, which is taking on the voice of Solomon to communicate something. Now, we do this in novels, right? Where a writer, an author, takes on the voice of the characters within the novel to speak through those characters to us. And in a sense, there actually appears to be two authors here. Or there's an author, and then there's Kohelet. There's somebody who gives us the introduction in verses 1, verse 1, who says, these are the words of the preacher. And then beginning in verse 9, somebody else, the author, the person who's collected these Proverbs and put them together in this book, speaks again. But what we have here, whether it's one particular author who is then like a novel or using a literary device and saying, hey, I'm going to give you the words of Kohelet, someone who looks and lives like Solomon, it is probably someone related to Solomon, somebody like Solomon. That's who we're supposed to have in mind. Whether it's really Solomon or simply a literary figure, he is supposed to be like Solomon. And why would that be important? Well, because Solomon is known not only just for his wisdom, but also for the fact that he is a man who had everything, everything. He had, had experienced everything in life there was to offer. He had so much of, of life here. And it's a king who had the opportunity to speak into the life of his community. People would listen to him, and indeed he even speaks to uh, his son. So this could be the words of Solomon literally, or it could be simply some literary device, but it, we're supposed to have Solomon in mind as the character when we read this book. And he writes it as a pastor, as a shepherd. He's seeking to be a sage mentor to those who are listening to him, who's extending wisdom. And that puts Ecclesiastes smack stab in the genre we call wisdom books or wisdom literature. The most basic definition of wisdom, this is not necessarily the fullest biblical definition, but the most basic definition of wisdom is the skill in living. It's the ability to take whatever knowledge you have and maximize the use of that knowledge to live well in this world. When we think of wisdom, we think of the tidy universe of Proverbs, don't we? That's what we think of as wisdom literature. But but Ecclesiastes is not Proverbs. Actually, they're quite different. Proverbs tell us that life works best and view the fact that there is a God who made this world and that even after the fall that there is a moral arc that still exists in the universe. Proverbs focuses on the norms and the rules. If you do X or you avoid Z, then these blessings and these good things will come into your life. Usually, that's what Proverbs says. But Ecclesiastes focuses on the exceptions to life and perhaps the realities we don't like to talk about so much. And so while Proverbs teaches us in principle stuff like, hey, if you live a good life, if you're obedient, if you're righteous, things will go well for you. And the evil thing, people, those evil people, things go badly for them. See, here's Proverbs says this in chapter 13, verse 21. Disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. Ecclesiastes says this, In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. In other words, what's he saying there? A righteous man, and yet his life is snuffed out early. Whereas the evil one, it gets rich, and life keeps going good for him. In Proverbs, a good man plus God's love and wisdom equals a good life. In Ecclesiastes, though, a good man plus God's love might mean you still die like a common animal. That's the rough truth of Ecclesiastes. Often Christians will treat Proverbs like it's a book of promises, but Ecclesiastes won't let that stand. You have to read them side by side. Ecclesiastes tells us that life cannot be lived simply entrusting ourselves to tidy formulas, for life under the sun isn't that tidy, and it does not come with a one-size-fits-all format. And so Ecclesiastes, it pops the bubble for us of how we felt life was supposed to work. And in this, the approach the teacher takes in extending to us wisdom is he does what? He goads. Like the most annoying and academic of professors, he's constantly asking questions that he will not answer and and poking holes in all of our worldviews. Verse 11 of chapter 12, the words of the wise are like goads. What's a goad? A goat is something that a shepherd would use, somebody who is is working with herds to keep the the flocks in line, to keep them from running off and jumping off a cliff. And a goat is like a stick with a sharp point in which you jab it into the animal to kind of give them some short-term pain so that they won't have long-term death. That's what the teacher is doing. He won't let us. He's bringing some pain into our lives with our questions and popping the bubble of the, the good life by by asking these questions, by undercutting our assumptions and our distractions, far from creating a nice and tidy and cozy atmosphere, the first thing he does is create tension in our hearts and our souls, and we don't like tension. We'd rather move through life with easy an easy guide, with clear markers. While being a very sophisticated philosophy professor, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is using the, the approach of a little child, He's playing the why game. And if you're a parent, you've ever had a time where the child is playing the why game, it makes you want to scream. Why are we having this for dinner? Because we're doing because of this. We want you to eat healthy. Why do you want us to eat healthy? Because we love you. Why do you love time question after question? Why why is the earth round? I don't know. Stop asking me questions that I don't know the answers to. That's what Ecclesiastes does. Ecclesiastes is meant to wound you. It makes you think about the realities of life that you would get, rather get up every day and rather not think about. One scholar said Ecclesiastes is particularly useful for evangelical Christians because we don't like to face the sad and skeptical thoughts that we have deep down. But we, we won't allow those things to come into the front door of our faith. And so what does Ecclesiastes do? He has to bring it in through the back door. Ecclesiastes for those like us Americans who like to live so busy that we never have to let these thoughts come to the forefront of our minds. All of our toiling, our chasing, our doing, just lots and lots and lots of doing so that we never have to ask the question, why the heck am I doing this in the first place? Because that might mess some things up. He is forcing us to face the logical conclusions of the assumptions of our worldview, of our presuppositions. He's pushing our face into the questions that we have deep down, and he will not leave us alone until we are forced to answer some of his questions. But in this, in doing this, he is moving us towards wisdom. You see, wisdom requires us to think, to do the hard work. If you want to be wise in this world, You must think and you must think hard. And you must not think in the world as if it's a bubble, but see the world as it really is in reality. So that's the approach and the main theme. The main theme, the way he's going to pursue this approach and come after us, is that he's going to tell us that everything is vapor. That's his approach. The theme of Ecclesiastes, we see this in verses 2 and then verses, chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, he says, says the preachers. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Then he repeats it again, a book to the book, right? Beginning and end. Vanity of vanities, it says in verse 8, says the preacher, all is vanity. The Hebrew word is hevel. It sounds like the word that should be vanity, right? It's all just hevel. And you got to say it like in a good Hebrew way, kind of like gutturally, hevel, like you're going to hack up a lung. In Hebrew, if you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. Well, Hevel is repeated 38 times in this book. This word is most often by many scholars translated as meaningless, but that actually doesn't capture the heart of the idea. To say that he is saying meaningless is actually to overstate what what he's been communicating here. The Hebrew word literally means vapor or smoke. That's what Hevel is. It refers to breath. Like if he was... If you're up early this morning, you came outside, and you've been in the warm air, and you came out into the cold, and you emitted breath as you came outside, and you saw your breath, and then what happened? It was there for a second, and it was gone. That's what he's saying, life is life. A wisp of smoke. Life is a vapor means we can't fully grasp it. Life and the joys of life just slip through our fingers. Life is a vapor... Smoke disorients us, doesn't it? It's foggy, and this book is foggy. Life as a vapor moves like wind. It can't be controlled. It moves back and forth. It's unpredictable and unstable, and life as a vapor speaks to its brevity. It's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. Now you see it, now you don't. That's life. So the point is further articulated than in verse three. Life is vapor, it's vanity. Well, what does that mean exactly? Well, he goes on in verse three. What does it mean gain in man by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What he's saying here is he's talking about gain. Gain. Futility. It's working over and over and over again, but not getting anywhere. It is not that life is meaningless, but that it is short, unfulfilling, and in the end, you get nothing. You No soup for you. That's what Ecclesiastes says. You get nothing out of this. Now, friends, the word gain here is a unique word in the Bible. It's used throughout Ecclesiastes as well. It's a word that means leftover. It means profit. In other words, it's saying after you've done all your efforts and you finally pay down your mortgage, you die. What? That's how life works. That's what he's saying. The emptiness of futility. And there is not a single aspect of human existence that is not frustrated by this futility. He looks at us and says, all your work, it does not work. All your toil, it produces nothing. You see, the Solomon-like figure is saying, and this is where it's important to see it through the lens of Solomon. Think about who Solomon was. He was the richest, smartest guy in the world in which he lived. People from all over the world came and lauded him. In fact, he's going to say, all my wisdom and my knowledge, even that is Hevel. All that. All my riches, all my pleasure. How many wives did Solomon have? A thousand? Man, he did a lot of work, built a lot of buildings. He's saying, I've been everywhere, man. And I've tried everything. It's not worth it. That's what he's saying. You see, we, he's saying, it doesn't matter if it's sports or wealth or family or pleasure, I've had it. He's that guy who's giving that testimony. I've been to the mountaintop. It didn't satisfy me. That's what he's saying. And he, he can say it. And he is a perfect witness because he's had it all. And, and what we're going to show throughout this book, and we're going to go through week in and week out, is he's just going to tick off the various things Work, it's vain. Pleasure, that's vain. So get, get ready. This is where we're going in coming weeks. We're going to take them one by one, and we're just going to dive into what Ecclesiastes says about how useless these things are, week in and week out. And verses 4 through 11 are simply his opening salvo, like a, a prelude to what is to come. Let's just walk through it really briefly, just to get us, get us to begin. This is, we're just warming ourselves up to the poetic language of Ecclesiastes, Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. What does that mean? You come and you go and nothing changes. Nothing has changed. This is the absurd reality. Humanity dies and an iteration comes, but the earth, <laughs> it's as if you were never here. Verse 5 through 8 gives us three pictures of, of, of nature about particularly displaying all of our striving and how useless it is. Verse 5 says this, The sun rises and the sun goes down. And the key word is it hastens. The sun is constantly, every day, hastening from one end of the earth to the other. And it is a gerbil. The sun is a gerbil running on the tracks in its cage. You wake up the next day and you're back right where you started. The wind goes around and around, it says in verse 6. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circle the wind blows The answer is blowing in the wind, right? Maybe the hippies were connecting to something. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. Now, what the heck is that saying? It's saying, why do the rivers, all the rivers seem to flow, and day in and day out, they pour forth everything they've got into the sea, and the sea never fills up? This is, you know, know the, 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 the myth of Sisyphus? Where the gods, if gods damn him to like, here's hell for you, you must roll this boulder up to the top of this mountain, and as soon as it gets there, it's going to roll back down. That is the illustration that it's giving from nature. That's what he's saying. Rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, day in and day out, all of your labors lead to nothing. Like the hamster wheel, we run and run and run, and we go nowhere, and then verses 9 through 11 just kind of throws more salt into the wound. He follows his, his poem, and using his nature examples, he says, what has been will always be. In other words, the hamster wheel of life has always been here, and this is how it's going to be today, and tomorrow, and the next day. Is there anything new? You say, he says, there's nothing new. You, know, you say, what about the light bulb? and the internet, and going to the moon. He's not, designed that there's, not saying that there's not innovation. What he's saying is that all the questions that we enter into the world is the same questions that the people before us had, and all the things we never have any gain because ultimately we're simply removed from this place. And then finally in verse 11, we will all be forgotten. Do you know the names of your great-grandparents? Technically, biologically, you had eight of them. You know how many I remember? One. I only met two of them. They both died before I was three years old, 100 years ago. I can barely remember, we can barely remember each other's names, much less the people who lived 100 years ago. We're gonna, when we die, poof. What is the effort we're pouring out for the stuff we value and worked hard to get? You know, I was uh, named to the all-county team in my senior year in high school. And I've kept the jersey from being on the all-star team. I worked the first 18 years of my life to get that stupid jersey. And it's sitting in a box in storage in my house. I've kept it because I worked really hard for it. You know what my children will do the second I die? (laughs) If it has not already been turned to dust by then, it will go straight into the trash bin. I worked 18 years for that thing. Eighteen years. Are you as verse? And this is the challenge question. What is it you're striving to that you think arrival looks like? And let me ask you, what happens when you catch it? Like a dog chasing his tail. <laughs> now what? Are you as verse fourteen says later on, striving after wind? Our successes will slip through our fingers. Our empires will crumble. Our estates will be liquidated. You know what? Even my, summer, my sermons will go in the trash bin. Heard about a, a couple who went to London. They were big fans of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is known as perhaps one of the, the church's greatest preachers ever. He's preached thousands of sermons. He preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle Church in the 19th century. Fabulous. People came from all over the world to hear Charles Spurgeon preach. One of the most famous preachers ever. They showed up into London, they wanted to go see the Metropolitan Tabernacle where Spurgeon had preached, and they began asking, they couldn't find it, they began asking people, hey, where is Spurgeon's church? And everybody said, Who? Who? Life is short, you will be forgotten. Any supposed accomplishments will be tossed in the trash. Good day, sir. (laughs) Now the key point is this is it doesn't mean it is stupid or meaningless. It means it is not ultimately fulfilling. It can't be ultimate, is what Ecclesiastes is trying to tell us. It doesn't mean you quit life. Actually, no, the wise accept the reality that life is short, that we are small, that we have no really ability in and of ourselves to accomplish anything of gain in this life. Everything you are living, money, power, fame, even just being a good person, whatever you're aspiring after, he is saying that joy will not come from what you think it'll come from, ultimately. Vanity means something failing to achieve its purpose or disappointing one's expectations. To try to suck life, big L, big I, big F, big E, out of life is a recipe for enormous frustration. And like an old man, he is trying to reshape our expectations while there's still time. Reshape our expectations about life under the sun. The wise are those who shape their life around reality and And live with the right expectations of what life has for them. He is saying, life won't make sense most of the time. So stop expecting that it will. He is saying, the life's not fair. So stop expecting that it will be. You will be much happier when you lower your expectations. Even about God. Do you understand this about God? One of the things that Christians believe is that all these things that we see is like, we think are blessings in the Bible that God has promised them, that we're going to have them here under the sun... Do you know, that, that expectation of God is going to lead through some deep and significant frustrations with God because He hasn't promised them to us. He hasn't promised them to us. He's promised us some blessings somewhere else. Now, this brings us to a junction. And you know, this is the same junction that philosophy has come to very, very clearly. It brings us to a place where we must ask the question okay, there's no ultimate game under the sun. Well, what is, what is the purpose of life then? What does that mean? Bertrand Russell, communicates, he's one of the most profound philosophers of the 20th century, communicates the absurdity of life in this quote, and I think shows where we've landed as a a society. He He writes this, We stand on the shore of an ocean, crying to the night and the emptiness. Sometimes a voice answers out of the darkness, but it is a voice of one drowning. In a moment, the silence returns. The world seems to me quite dreadful, The unhappiness of most people is very great, and I often wonder how they all endure it. To know people well is to know their tragedy. It is usually the central thing about which their lives are built. Did you hear that? Tragedy is your expectations are not reached. And I suppose if they did not live most of the time in the things of the moment, they would not be able to go on. This is the philosophy of our society. Now, there are two options, two extremes to the way we respond to this reality that philosophers and the book of Ecclesiastes brings us. The way, the way where we have chosen is either you, the, the artists and the philosophers and the, the great poets, they either do this, they commit suicide, and many of them that's what they choose. Or the second is the great heroic way of doing life is to spit in the wind, even though it's all meaningless, to enjoy it while you can. You know, there are times when in the book of Ecclesiastes, you think he's at the suicidal point. And there's times where he's actually at the place where he's saying, just enjoy life while I can. Eat, drink, and be merry. And he actually will say, hey, there's actually things in this life. Hey, if you lower your expectations and just enjoy the simple things in life, that will be better for you. Now, this is baffled commentators. Life is futile, enjoy some stuff. That seems contradictory for the book, for this book in the Bible to say. And people wonder if this teacher knows God at all. And this can even be frustrating for us who are reading Ecclesiastes because it's as if the teacher walks into our life and says, I'm going to pop the bubble and I'm going to show you the stupidity and the absurdity of reality. And then he's going to go, well, so why don't you enjoy a few things? And you're like, how am I supposed to enjoy everything now? It reminds me, did anybody see the, the, the movie Hurt Locker a couple years ago? It's an unbelievably tense movie. It begins with, it's about a bomb diffusing crews in Iraq. And it begins with the, this one particular bomb defuser being blown to bits. And then the main guy is a guy named William James, and he's played by Renner, Jeremy Renner. And it is harrowing and intense. And the soldiers, they, they see unbelievably awful things throughout their engagement. They're never quite sure if somebody who has a cell phone is if they're calling their grandmother or if they're diffusing or getting, blowing up a bomb. Some veterans saw the movie and criticized it, while others praised it for sharing the experience, the incredible intensity of the experience emotionally of men and women on the battlefield. And they said this, that the movie conveyed the incommunicable experience of war. But the end of the movie is what I maybe have found the most profound moments. After all James and his colleagues endure; they go home. In the final few clips of the movie, he's back home, he's married, and he has a child, and he's holding a baby but he decides to re-up for another tour over his wife's objections. And the, the question that's asking is, why would you re-up for this? Why would you go back into this searing danger Well, the last scene of the movie tells us why? Before he's redeployed, he's in a grocery store, in a shopping mall. He's walking through brightly lit aisle of well-stocked retail store. It is bland and it is totally unaccepted with its fluorescent lights and stock shelves. He is shopping, and the absurdity is palpable. How can somebody who has seen what he has seen go back to shopping? After you've seen what the world is really like, the movie is saying, it is hard to have patience with a mall. And that's what makes Ecclesiastes seem so absurd. We're going to show you what life is really like and then we're going to tell you to enjoy it. (laughs) So how can you enjoy life if you pay attention and you have your eyes wide open to life under the sun? Well, that means you must have faith in something above the sun, something beyond your experience. C.S. Lewis put it this way. If you find ourselves, we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. The approach of Ecclesiastes is to show us life realities in a broken world such that we begin to look for another path. If we limit our perspective to life under the sun, which by the way, that's what the scientific approach is of naturalism and the philosophical approach of the world humanism is, that we cannot think of anything outside this box. But if we do that, we are left with the philosopher's dilemma of either just spitting in the wind or suicide. But when we look to God with reverence and awe, we are able to see the meaning of life, even the midst of life's seemingly meaningless activities, and the beauty of its pleasures, and the eternal significance of everything we do, including the little things of everyday life. They are infused with the sacred, if there is a world beyond this. And in fact, it's not what Ecclesiastes is not telling us that nothing matters, it's at the end telling us that everything matters, and this is the purpose of Ecclesiastes that we catch a glimpse of this God-shaped eternal perspective throughout the book. He's going to give us little little breadcrumbs, but it becomes even clearer at the end. Verse 13, the end of the matter, after all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The end of the matter, in the midst of a book about, about vapor, in a book communicated with the clarity of fog, we have a statement that cannot be any more clear. The answer is fear God, obey Him, and look to His judgment to come. Fear God. Fearing God means that we live out of an awareness that a holy God is more real than anything we see in this world. Fearing God is that we live out of awareness that a holy God is more real than anything we see in this world. Proverbs began it that way, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Here in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says that the fear of God is not just the beginning, it's also the end. It's the goal. If nothing under the sun is going to give you ultimate joy, what would compel you to do to perhaps look beyond the sun and fear God, to know your place, to sit in awe of his holiness, even though you cannot understand his ways and why he brings certain sufferings and why he brings certain joys and the moments that he does one or the other, it's all very confusing to us. But if you make God your highest joy and nothing under the sun will allow you to enjoy all all the gifts... As they, you, We want to enjoy them, but if we make God ultimate, then we're set free to actually enjoy the gifts of this world as they're meant to be, to take them with an open hand. You can place everything under the sun in its proper place and just say, it's, it's all under you. You ultimately are what I want. And in this way, Ecclesiastes, while depressing so often, actually becomes an invitation to real life. If there is a God above the sun, then it means that life below the sun actually matters. It means whether he brings suffering or pleasure, success or failure to your life, that whatever you do for him, that matters. As the missionary C.T. Studd famously said, one life soon will be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. And it begins to put, this is wisdom, framing life within the reality that God has set. But in order to know and enjoy God properly, we first have to see the emptiness of life without him, becoming thoroughly disillusioned with everything the world has to offer, to ask ourselves the hard questions, and that's what Ecclesiastes is going to do. And like a good pastor and like a good counselor, Kohala shows us the absolute vanity of life without God so that we finally stop expecting earthly things to give us the fulfillment that we keep asking them to give us. And we begin to do what Paul says, that wisdom person in the New Testament, where he says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on the things on earth. And if we learn this well, it will force our hand to see our need for Jesus. Because it says, fear God, his judgment is coming. (laughs) That's how it ends. Fear God, his judgment is coming. Every deed, what that's saying, every deed will be brought under the evaluation of God. Every deed will, will not be brought in the evaluation of ultimate death. It will be brought in the evaluation of what God says about it. This means every life will be viewed by him. Have you kept his commandments? Have you lived in view of his holiness and his greatness and the reality of who he is? And our answer will inevitably be, no, I haven't. Like Solomon, I've pursued the pleasure, and through work I've tried to be fulfilled. And through this and that, I've sought something else besides you, and I've not obeyed your commandments. And so we throw up our hands and we go, whoops, look at that. Even the fear of God won't work for me. Ah, but this is where Jesus comes in, where he says life and life abundant is in me, because Jesus is the one who comes to live under the sun. He lays down all the glory and the beauty of the things that he had above the sun and he comes and takes on this bizarre existence where he has no home, where he experiences suffering and joys, where he drinks wine one day and has no water and bread the next. This is the life that he lives and yet he does it fully to the pleasure of God the Father, obeying him, living perfectly, wisely and he ultimately takes that life and in his obedience dies in atoning death for our folly, for our disobedience, for our pathetic small lives he dives for so that we might have new life. Are you ready for judgment? You could be ready now. Not by proving to him that you, what you deserve but by receiving from Jesus what you don't deserve. So the cross in this it will set you free to actually fear God, to see God as he really is. But if you see him as he really is, you go, "Okay, he's going to crush me." But not with the cross there. The cross says Jesus says, "I have been crushed." I have taken the crushing, so that you can look with fear at God, the reality, view life through the lens of that God is a reality, and you can live for him. Under the sun perspective says there's nothing new, but Jesus says I am coming now to make all things new. Under the sun perspective says the reality of death makes life absurd and arbitrary, but Jesus says I have come and I have defeated death, and now I am now bringing life and life eternal Under the sun, all of our striving leads not to ultimate gain, but Jesus says our life is now ransomed and is now being fit to be a tribute to the glory of God that will echo into eternity and to eternity beyond. That is the life that you now get to live. And so what he's saying is, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. In other words, now he's saying, if we were to read Ecclesiastes in the eye of redemptive history in the whole Bible, it's saying, live life to the fullest for the glory of God's name. And so what we're going to do in this series, is we're going to set our eyes on the things below at the beginning of sermons so that we can see the foolishness of it so that we might set our eyes on the things above. And in that way, perhaps we will learn the wisdom of living rightly in this world. Let's pray, Lord. We just, we just. It's like we just drove around for forty minutes, and I think it's going to feel like that a lot. <laughs> so, Heavenly Father, Spirit of the Living God, I pray that as we, um, as we face the things that we know. If we were to be asked, hey, is your work fully going to satisfy? We would say, no, of course not. And yet, day in and day out, we live like that. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would come and do a mighty work. That you would press our nose into the stink of the truth. And then week in and week out, you would give us the gospel of grace. Lord, I pray that we would come out of this series and out of these these sermons saying, I'm going to I'm going to lay down these things that don't matter, or I'm going to hold loosely these things, and I'm going to submit them week in and week out to the God who reigns, and whether he gives and whether he takes away, I'm going to say, blessed be his name. Lord, would you teach us such wisdom and teach us how to do it day in and day out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.